Welcome to Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I'm the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year I have the pleasure of attending events to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as I go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand, from lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering to some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Hello listeners and welcome to another episode of our podcast. Today is a conversation with an incredible lady by the name of Nicole Lee. Acts of violence can affect anyone, but some people, such as those with disability, may be especially vulnerable to experiencing violence, with one in two adults with a disability experiencing violence after the age of 15. After suffering a decade of abuse at the hands of a former husband, Nicole Lee now uses her lived experience of family violence to speak out for those who don't yet have a voice. Nicole, who also uses a wheelchair, focuses on family violence perpetrated against those who have a disability or who depend on carers or family members for support. Listen into this week's episode as Nicole delves into how intimate partner carers can use coercive control as a form of domestic abuse, redefining our concepts of vulnerability and agency. This furthers our understanding of how intimate partner violence systematically breaks people down while highlighting the added barriers people with disabilities face and the internal fears they hold when trying to leave a violent situation. Hello and welcome to another episode of Pebble in the Pond. With me today I have the pleasure of introducing to you a magnificent lady by the name of Nicole Lee. Nicole, welcome. Hey, how are you going? Really well. Thanks very much for joining us uh, on the show and uh, looking forward to our conversation together. Do you just want to give us a little bit of a, a background with your journey uh, in relation to where you're at today? Okay, so um, I'm, I'm uh, what we call ourselves a survivor advocate of family and domestic violence. So um, I guess I came into this world uh, due to my own personal experience of, of family violence. So that was uh, 10 years of, of intimate partner violence was perpetrated against myself um, by my former husband, who was also uh, my carer. Um, and the abuse... Uh, went through all the different forms so it was it started off as sexual and then it moved to emotional and psychological and physical and financial uh, uh, as well um, and that went over the course of, of, of 10 years and, and eventually um, how I eventually got out of that relationship was that um, I took an overdose and um, one of my many suicide attempts during this time and um yeah, in the emergency department, they'd asked me why I'd, I'd actually done that. And, and I said to them, you know, my husband's raped me four times this week and I don't want to live like this anymore. Um, you know, then they called him to come pick me up and they sent me home to him. But at some point, somewhere in that emergency department, uh, called Child Protection to become involved because when I took the overdose, he left me on the kitchen floor and rolled me on my back and left me there. So that raised alarm bells for people and child protection became involved and, you know, 
they asked questions and he was honest so then they got the police involved and yeah it's all that's kind of where my world kind of got thrown upside down I guess you could say and and um, he was eventually charged and spent a couple of years in jail um, and then not long after he went to jail I actually got to give evidence at Victoria's Royal Commission into Family Violence back in 2015 as a lay witness um, and then after that one of the recommendations that came out of that Royal Commission was uh, um, to embed the voice of victim survivors across the reforms. So they started up a victim survivors advisory council and I got to be one of the inaugural members on that council. So that's where that's how I'm uh, here in this space today, doing this yeah. work and, 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 yeah, attending these conferences. Uh, and congratulations on, on being involved in, in those um, uh, those things as well because yeah. it's, it's amazing that, uh, you know what, it's great that they're starting to get the victim's voice in there mm. and a part of that. Um, to drive change and it's even better with what you're doing now as a result un yeah. of the unfortunate experience you had to go through. Yeah, it's it's been really good to be involved in, in all of that and, and to work alongside de design teams that are really great at writing policy or um, you know some of the different structures such as the Orange Door that's come out of our recommendations as Support and Safety Hub and working alongside a design team to let's define what the problem is. So they're doing it from a structure position and I'm doing it from you know, what it's like to live and exist and, and navigate the system position and, and how that's been a really good recipe for, you know, hopefully, you know, um, finding some of the problems better than what they've ever had the ability to do before and then hopefully what we're producing is working for the end user so much better than it ever was before. Which makes sense. Uh, yes. <laughs> I mean, that's, it is logical that it would be yeah. that way. But, I mean, if we go through... As, as it related to your experience and the lack of attention and voice that you had. Uh, yeah. uh, I mean, t tell us that and how, how you're often ignored uh, and really it was the carer that was getting all the attention. Yeah, so because I have a disability, you know, um, you know my partner was my carer and, and, and during that 10 years my mental health deteriorated quite severely. So then he was also my psychological support and care in that regard as well. So, you know, even oh God, even when I was pregnant, you know, he came to all of the appointments he went to. He came along to all the mater maternal and child health nurse appointments, um, you know, to see my obstetrician. Everywhere I went, he went with me, um, whether it was the GP or... Um, so nobody thought to think that, you know, something's a little wrong here something's a little odd here why is this man just never leaving her side and because you've got that element of of somebody being a carer is that um you know people look at it as like oh he's just caring for her he's, he's that's his role as a carer and nobody thought to question that whether or not this was actually very controlling um <laughs> and and carers also then tend to get put on a pedestal as well as being you know, uh, self-sacrificing and um, you know, and a lot of them are, but you know, there's that recipe when you've got that power imbalance for abuse. Yeah. Um, so, as my mental health deteriorated, and I'm and I'm working with people, you know, in, in uh, you know an APU ward, and 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 they're asking him questions about what's going on with Nick, rather than actually asking me. <laughs> mm. And and you know where does you know where does my voice fit in all of that? And I didn't feel that. I had a lot of space. Like I had my private psychiatrist that I confided a lot in um, and he was my best support throughout all of that. But, you know, you know that doctor-patient confidentiality also meant that his hands were tied in doing anything outside of that space. So all he could do was talk to me. He couldn't tell anyone else. Mm -hmm. He couldn't 
get anybody else in to help because, you know, he, he couldn't. Um, but other systems that, that could have didn't. Mm. Um, and that, yeah, and it all really plays down to, you know, being the person with a disability and the carer beside you. Now, anybody who's got a disability that's ever been to a cafe knows that even some random stranger standing beside you and, and you're there by yourself is that everybody looks to the person beside you that to you know, find out what you want, you know, what your coffee order is. And it's like, no, he's not actually with me. Mm. I'm here by myself and I would like this. Mm. But it's, you know, this constant stigma and stereotyping of women with disabilities need to constantly be with someone or looked after. Um, yeah, and, th- and that we're not independent or we don't have our own voice. And, you know, that goes on around us constantly. So when you start bringing in violence, which is already very controlling... Um, you know, having services actually go to the abuser for answers. What message does that send to the victim themselves? And to me, that made me feel like, because mm. he keeps saying, you know, you're crazy, you've got problems, you need to fix yourself. And then the system's going to him, say, what's going on with Nick? And it just played into all of that murky world of like, and I felt like, oh, it is my fault. I do need to get help and I need to fix myself and then he won't be doing this. <laughs> yeah, it's... It's amazing that that sort of thing was going on, mm. but at the same time, do you feel like that that's your experience is something that other people are also experiencing? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I, I, my experience is most definitely not isolated, and I feel through our hospital public mental health services that I know they're overstretched and I know they're under-resourced and understaffed, but that just means that then they don't have the time to sit down with patients. They don't have the time to actually, you know, what is actually behind this behaviour? What is driving your mental health or, or health or what's going on at home that could be contributing to, you know, this deterioration or to, you know, this, this episode that's going on right now? Um, that nobody takes the time to, to look for those things that we band-aid affect the person there in that moment and we're not actually looking outside of that person to what are contributing factors mm. um which i think is a huge huge fail uh you, you know massive failing and, and it's the same within the disability sector i mean i know if i was still with my partner and and um you know and and i'd gone into a planning meeting that he would have taken control of that planning meeting and it would have been completely fine um that we rely a lot on informal supports and informal carers um, to support the system and you know for the most part like I said carers, most carers are fine and that but some aren't and um, but you know putting intimate partners in that position to be carers I mean it, it changes the dynamics of relationships and even healthy relationships can be put under strain and and ultimately we all deserve to have those everyday relationships just like everyone else where you can be husband and wife um, you know, or parent and child, and you can ju- go back to just being a parent of your teenage children, and you can go back to just being a teenager, and not have to rely on your parents to look after you or your partner, and you just have everyday relationships, just like everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so yeah, that's where you feel like we should be going is to separate the two, so that partners aren't necessarily always the carer. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like, and, and, and even when their relationships are healthy, if something happens to that informal support, then the person, you know, is left hanging, you know, because the system can't respond quickly enough. It can't respond in a crisis. So, you know, the person with a disability, you know, if, if something happens to you, you know, I've got a new partner now, and if he was in that position, if something happened to him, um, then what would I do? I'd be back to that, 
oh my god, I'm not going to survive situation again and and nobody deserves to be in that position and I mean and and when the police removed my ex-husband from the house and I was in that position and I was in that moment when I'm begging them you can't do this because I'm thinking to myself I can't survive on my own I can't get my kids to school I can't even open the back door to feed my dogs how the hell I can't use a vacuum cleaner because I get all tangled up in it um you know how am I going to do this on my own how am I going to have a shower oh so, you know, my begging them not to was my fear of not surviving, my fear of losing my children, ending up in a nursing home or, or ending up in care. And, and, and these are very real fears for people with a disability because these things, these things have happened and do happen to people. To the extent where they're afraid of reporting it to some mm. degree because they don't want that to happen. Yeah, well, you don't want that to happen. And, and the other thing is, like, um, you know, the, you only know what you know and... and, and if you haven't been told what your rights are, then how do you know when they're being violated? Um, and the same with the system. You only know what you've been told you're entitled to ask for with the NDIS or ask for with the, dis- you know, with the services that are available. Um, and if you've never been told anything else, well, then you don't know to actually ask for anything else and just say, hey, no, actually, I don't want this person caring for me. I want to have um, somebody else manage my plan and I want support workers coming in. But if you've been told that, you know, that that's not available, well, you don't ask for it. And we're waiting for people to speak up when they haven't actually been given the tools, you know, a lot of people haven't been given the tools in to be able to speak up or even know what to speak up for. And it's getting people to understand that for some of us with disabilities that we've had a lifetime of disempowering experiences and, um, you know, we've never been allowed to speak for ourselves or speak up for ourselves everybody else has done that for us whether or not that was a you know the really you know loving nurturing caring parents that you know um out of the goodness of you know and fear for the world of of, you know kind of cotton wooled their children a little um with disabilities and you know done everything for them well then that's also left them into this position of being an adult where they actually don't know how to um but also you know that you know Narrative can also be a very abusive one as well, not just necessarily out of the need to want to protect their child. And, um, you know, and if you've your whole life, everyone else has made decisions for you. You know, we're waiting for somebody like that that's never, ever had it, you know, been allowed to have or um, nurtured to have uh, independent decision-making capacity to all of a sudden have that, uh, you know, out of, out of nowhere and it's setting people up to fail or it's setting people up who are stuck to continue to stay stuck and and the experience of the domestic violence the intimate partner violence that you were ex- that you were experiencing uh was systematically breaking you down as a mm. person yeah. and then all of a sudden when they're getting removed from the situation which is sort of what you wanted but at the same time you're like well hang on i've been so dependent on that person yeah what happens now? So, what did actually happen when he was taken away? How did you how did you do all that stuff? Ah, uh, well, oh, I didn't, and 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 I was failing, you know, at the very beginning. You know, being given the car keys and, and said, you know, are you able to drive yourself home? I was like, well, yeah, I can, um, but it was you know some of the most scariest, darkest moments of my life in wow. that aftermath, and yeah. um, and I wasn't surviving and and we were not thriving and we were struggling and we've been left with so much debt and so little money and um you know i've got two two children and and it felt like we were being punished Mm. um through all of this and um eventually 
uh, I went to my child protection worker and I, and I said to her, I'm going to have to go and get that intervention order lifted because I don't know what else to do. I don't have anyone to help me. I'm not surviving and I, I haven't had a shower in eight weeks and you know <laughs> I don't have any other options. Is there anything you can do? Anything at all? Otherwise, I'm going to that court and I'm having that order lifted and he'll have to come home because there's nothing else I can do and we're not surviving. And that's when she's like, oh, well, actually, we've got disability services. I'm, I'm going to go up. I'm going to go back to the office and I'm going to go upstairs. And I'm going to ask somebody in that department, um, you know, what to do. And, and it took me to, to, to say that to them and, and to just put it out that this is the position I'm in. I have no choice. Um, so she, you know, she went up, you know, she went upstairs and found that, you know, in Victoria we have um, was it a, a disability family violence initiative fund package, and she was able to get access right then and there. And she could have back at the very beginning as well, but nobody thought to ask. Nobody thought to ask what are your immediate needs right now. But that was nine thousand dollars that could be accessed over twelve weeks, and they could they accessed it that day. So that night I had a support worker come in and have, and I had a shower, oh, wow. and they cleaned the house, and 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 oh, it w- that that was the turning point. Yeah. You know, where they took away um, and then, you know, applied for different other things that I didn't even know were available because, again, you only know what you know. Um, yeah, and, and, and started getting what we had in Victoria before the NDIS, which was an individual support package. So all of those things in place and they took away my um, need on him. So they took away that physical dependency and then I was given the space to work out the difference between need and want. And once I started to figure that out, hang on, yeah, yeah, I needed you to survive, but I actually don't want you. And that's when, that was a huge turning point for me. It was like, no, actually, I don't want you to come back. And, and the only way I'd ever let you come back is if you went and really got help and you spent a good year, two years, and, 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 and changed and you know, turned your life around. Then we could think about it, but I actually don't want you back. Um, and that's... Yeah, giving people that freedom where you take away that physical dependency on the person abusing, and yeah, and you've got the space to work out the difference between that need and want, and, and that's vital. That would have taken a lot of courage for you in that position. Yeah, yes. Yeah, <laughs> to stay the course. Yeah, it, look at it because you because of the cycle. You know, you have an incident, and then the apologies, and I'm going to all of that, and that's a very toxic cycle. And you're on that constantly. And and when he was first arrested, and I refused to make a statement at that point because I'd I'd sort of you know I said to the police that I need to give him one more chance to to get help. Maybe now that you're all telling him what I've been telling him all these years that you know this is rape. It makes me hate you. I wish you'd just stop it. Um, you know, you need to go and get help that you guys are all saying it now. Maybe he'll believe now, finally, the police are saying it, child protection are saying it, the men's behaviour change are saying this. Um, so ultimately, this is his last chance and I promise you, if he doesn't, I'll come back. And and that was, you know, that went for a couple of weeks and, um, and he called me one day to say, no, they can stick their program, I'm not doing it, get it. It was a very volatile phone call mind you i've got an intervention order in place here so he's breaching the intervention order made contact with me to tell me where i could go jam everything and that's i called the police that day and said okay i need to make that statement he's refusing to get the help and for me i was really really lucky i had a um the socket unit which is the child uh, sexual assault and child abuse investigation team involved so the detective you know the officer she said all right, we'll come in now. <laughs> we'll come yeah. in now and we'll get that statement right now. 
because and and that I didn't I didn't understand that at the time. But if she had waited till the next day, he was apologising, mm-hmm. and I would have got right back in, right back into the cycle. So he had his explosion. He'd ranted at me, and if they hadn't grabbed that moment before he apologised, I would have okay, maybe all right, one more, one more, one more chance because you know. <laughs> You know, women are very, you know, we're very nurturing and, you know, we don't want to see the worst for people even though they've done the worst to you. Yeah. Um, and it's hard to break that cycle. But once I did and, and you know, and I made the statement and, um, you know, you know, and the apologies came and it's like, well, I'm not backing down. I'm not, and that was hard to not back down, to not retract it. Um, and then seeing all of a sudden when he realised, oh, hang on, this isn't working on you anymore. And then... He became volatile and I saw another side to him that I was way, way more scared of and realised, okay, this is this is much more uh, serious than what I'd ever started giving it credit for and that's when all of it started hitting me, you know, the, the impact of what he'd been doing and the severity had really, really started to hit me at that point um, because I guess, you know, I downplayed it so much and yeah. that's kind of a survival thing for a lot of us. And that then gave you the confidence to continue and to keep persist with it and yeah. make sure that he was charged. Yeah, 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 so, yeah. Well, congratulations on being able to take that. Uh, <laughs> and Thanks. And whilst uh, your, s- your story is certainly unique to me mm. um, and, and I couldn't imagine what it would have been like to go through what you went through, do you unfortunately think that it's still happening all too, co- all too often? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, Even that cycle of yeah, in that cycle, um, you know, there'd be so many. There's so many other women who this is their daily reality of yeah. living this day in day out. Um, you know, that haven't identified it yet, or actually don't know what to do once they do identify it. And then there's, yeah, you know, th- that's yeah. The sad reality is that there are still people living like this, and um you know uh, it's more than on more than one woman a week is getting murdered on average in australia so and and that's the really confronting thing is you know um which i think i talked about you know yesterday in my presentation that you know i had an incident in the car where um i he was going to kill us and um that's terrifying (laughs) absolutely terrifying you know, your life does not flash before your eyes. I'm in the car and I'm just thinking, car accidents are messy. This is going to hurt. I hope it's quick. I really, really hope it's quick. And thank God the kids aren't in the car with us. And um, I guess this is how I die. This is, this is Jesus, this is how I end. Oh, and, and just hoping and praying that it was going to be quick and not painful. And how many women, you know, one woman a week is, is facing that. Yeah at the end of their life and and that to me is confronting because you know, that is one of the hardest things for me to you know, talk about for one and um to really i guess feel the full force of that i still sit separately to that emotion and to that moment but one woman every week in this country that's what she's faced with mm. now the person that she thought she loved and cared about and thought that they loved and cared about her and that's their last moment of, of terror and that's why you know we need that's why this the, you know we need to change this it's you know, you know the violence is horrific and and to die that way is abhorrent yeah completely agree and i think you know what you're doing out there and what you've been doing since is uh, a 
amazing and inspiring because that's obviously a key part of what's driving you to continue mm. Thank you. Beating the drum for what you're, yeah. what you know, what you're trying to uh, trying to achieve and trying to change and influence change, which is amazing. Mm. Tell me about how you've seen the NDIS come into play and and how do you seen that system? Have, have you do you think it's addressing some of the key issues? Do you think it's still a way to go? It's still got a long way to go. Mm. Um, I think, yeah, it's it's disappointing seeing a huge underspend when you know so many people are still suffering and so many people don't have the. Ne- you know, access to the, the supports that they need and this reliance on informal carers. And, um, you know, I've been asked some really inappropriate things in planning meetings. Um, you know, they ask you a question around, you know, so friends and family, what's going on there? And, you know, my response to that is I don't have anybody in my life that can help me mow, lo- mow my lawns or clean my house or help me do housework or change the sheets on the bed. So stop looking. Suddenly <laughs> they're trying to find... Yeah. resources close to you that can take some of the burden. Yeah, that can take some of the burden. And and we've got this billions of dollars of underspend, yet you're trying to look whether or not I invite a friend over for a cuppa. Hey, by the way, when you come over for that coffee, can you change the sheets on my bed? And it's like, completely inappropriate. Yeah. And I'm not going to allow you to do that. And, and, and yeah, it, it's every year so far as it's rolled out, it feels a little bit harder and a little bit more you know, difficult and those questions become more difficult and... Um, you know, it, like some people have really great experiences and that all comes down to the ex- expertise of the person doing the plan as well. Um, but, you know, if you're dealing with people who are disempowered and you're dealing with people who, you know, potentially a crisis, but, you know, people who are disempowered, yet we're going to give you this massively complex system to try and navigate and wondering why you're not. Well, it's there if you can navigate it, but why are we building more barriers for a community that is constantly facing barriers? And for some of us, you know, you do, you get tired and you just get done with you know, trying to jump all those hurdles. So you, know, you just kind of give up sometimes, but it shouldn't be that way. And the NDIS is the structure that can give people that freedom. It can give people everyday relationships. It can provide people with that freedom to be who they want to be and to be independent. And everybody has the right to be an independent individual in their own right making their own decisions for yeah. themselves. Yeah, and everybody has the capacity to do that. And, and, you know, we need to really start seeing people with a disability, you know, in a much better way than what we do in this country. And, and you know, I hear people talk about, you know, people who are nonverbal. Well, even people can communicate with their eyes. Yeah, 100%. Um, and, and, you know, and if you have somebody who's independent of, you know, an, an intimate, you know, a personal relationship with them, helping work out what it is that person wants versus then you take away that uh, vulnerability to being abused, you know, um, or you take away that power dynamic where people are susceptible to this kind, you know, that abusive behaviour and controlling and exploitive behaviour as well. Yeah. It seems like the intention's there, but the execution is a little bit off. Yeah, and the execution has <laughs> slowly changed yeah. a little and, and seems to be getting worse. And I thought, you know, at the start, like, oh, once they get teething problems and stuff, like, yeah. no, you just make... No, it's actually getting, it's actually getting worse and it's, and it's concerning and it's frustrating as well. What do you think they're not addressing? What do you think is missing? Um, for me, I would like in... Um, I guess every every planning meeting, having 
I need to just talk to this person for five minutes alone. So if a carer is always there or, you know, we just need to have a quick conversation together on our own and we'll get you to step out and um, maybe do a brief risk, risk assessment for one, uh, every person, every year. You know, it doesn't take long to do a five-minute brief risk assessment on people. Um, and then just even ask the question, you know, if I could wave a magic wand right now, you know, in an ideal world, what is it you'd want? You know, what is it you'd like to be doing? And if that doesn't match up to what's being asked for in their plan, you need to start, okay, this something's not right here, something's going on, um, and, and start raising alarms and, and, and putting in those red flags, okay, something's not right in this, you know, going on with this person's um, you know, support network or uh, we need to reevaluate. Um, and I don't, think it's, I don't think it's a really hard thing to do, mm. to be honest with you. Um, yeah, <laughs> even down to things like, you know, people need to be able to review their plans before they go live so that there's not this um, constantly people uh, disputing a plan. So you go and you have your meeting and then they post it to you in the mail and it could be completely wrong. And you don't get a chance to see that before they've said this is this is what you get. There's no consult. There's, there's no, no consult, so there's no working yeah. with the person with the disability, which feels incredibly disempowering. Now this was meant to empower us. That is very disempowering mm. to go in and they'll work out whether or not you need X, Y, and Z after you've told them this is what I need to do all of this stuff, and they work out well actually, no, we're not going to give you that. We don't think that you 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 that you need this or that doesn't quite fit the criteria. And then you get that back and you go, okay, well, I actually can't live my life now. <laughs> and, 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 you've, and now I've got to go through a review process which can take months. In order to correct that. In point. order to correct somebody's mistake. And, and, and half of the, you know, some of the time it comes down to, uh, you know, some of the planners don't have uh, – there's, there's so many disabilities and, you know, disabilities are very complex and, and no two disabilities are, are the same and no two people are the same. And, you know, planners, uh, of course, are going to make mistakes because – you know, there's only so much knowledge that they can know. It's such a growing part of the workforce yeah. that these people have been trained up as quick as they can to be in there and the mm. demand is so high. Yeah. Yeah, I, I had somebody in a planning meeting that didn't know the difference between a power chair and a manual wheelchair. And they all are, a power chair is, you know, the electric ones. They weigh over 100 kilos. A manual wheelchair p weighs under 10 kilos. She didn't know the difference between them and why I couldn't get a power chair into a car. Nobody can. <laughs> They're about 120 kilos. <laughs> no one's lifting like one of those and putting them in a standard car. That's It's just not possible and I don't yeah. understand why you don't know that. That's a pretty simple fact. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> pretty simple little like, concept out there that we don't know and so I'm not really I, – I, I actually don't feel confident that you know how to write a plan that's going to meet my needs. What's some of the positive things the NDIS has done it, uh, well, other, other than power? People with disabilities to somewhat take more control over where yeah. they just... Yeah, well, I guess so the NDIS came along for me after I left that relationship, so I was in a much better position than if I was still together. So what that's done for me is, you know, in the system before, we were very, very under-supported, under-resourced, so it meant that I was able to... I now have access to support workers and help around the home um, so I can stay independent in my own home, which I didn't have that before. And, you know... We, we survived, and but it wasn't great, it wasn't pretty. You know, if you got maximum of three hours a week support from the council, you know, it, that, that was your bare, you know, your bare minimum of surviving mm. on that kind of support, whereas now I've got, you know, a, a really comprehensive plan. I've got a lot of hours that I didn't have access to that before. So that's that's a really, really good positive. Like, if you can get a comprehensive plan that meets your needs, then it's 
then it is really good and it's better than way better than what we had before um equipment also now is 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 the gap funding is is funded so in victoria we had um, we'd have statewide equipment program and that gave you twelve hundred dollars towards a chair that at that point in time was worth about six or seven thousand so you had to fund the rest of that money most of us are on the poverty line we're on Mm. pensions none of us have that gap funding so we just mashed together old pieces of equipment and we made do with broken bits and you know just yeah it wasn't great so we don't i don't have to deal with that um so now when when i got my new chair which was a bit of a fight but i i I got it in the end and that was twenty thousand dollars worth of chair that i would never have been able to access before and and i've never um you know i've never had a chair like that before because it just wasn't financially possible because i didn't have that kind of money yeah tell tell me with uh, do you feel like because you mentioned before that you ended the relationship prior to NDIS. If the NDIS was around, how does that change things? If like someone trying to get out of a relationship now with the NDIS, is it better, easier? Is it more difficult? No, look, unless unless um, decent amount of funds are in your plan for external supports, then it's it's still difficult. It's still you're still very stuck. So unless you've got access to the support workers um, to take over from that informal carer, then um, yeah, yeah, it's still it'll fall short, and the NDIS isn't a crisis service. You know, it can't act in a crisis. So, you know, your your only hope in that instance is to uh, put in an emergency plan review and just really push that this is urgent. You know, that this that I need a review. Um, so because you need you know this informal carer who's been doing all of this has been removed, and you know I yeah, we need to do this review now to get more supports in place so that I can remain. Uh, you know, independent and away from this person. So that doesn't happen quickly, um, which is unfortunate. Um, yeah, so, you know, because I think, you know, for most people who are in abusive relationships that have a disability, there's a good chance that, in, you know, and it's from an informal carer that they're, you know, that they're denying access to people coming into the house because that's a way to control you and that's a way to keep you stuck there. So we need to be able to respond so much quicker than we are when you know when somebody's going through that process of leaving you know uh, or escaping that we need you know, the NDIS has to respond on the spot like no more no longer than a week I would say max that they need to be able to respond you know we can make refuges as accessible as we want but you know if you don't have the means to or supports to actually get to that refuge you know well I heard was it some people saying you know we, we need more refuges because where is she going to go yeah. okay if we get more refuges that are accessible well how are we going to go and yeah. that's the missing link. Yeah, more adaptive and, and to be able to react yeah. in a situation oh, yeah. so that they actually feel supported yeah. and empowered during that situation rather than controlled yeah. and, and, in, and impeded yeah. to be able to yeah, change the situation. Did, is that part of what you've been doing with the uh, Victorian Survivors Advisory Council? Have you been looking at, at things like that to look at the processes and... Yeah, so yeah, little bits and pieces. So like the NDIA is um, that's a federal national program. So all the stuff we've been doing in Victoria is is very is state based, yeah. but there have been conversations that have started um, across that. You know, family violence NDIS interface. I mean, like it, it just has to, but it's more I guess more a lot of my involvement has been around that you know support and safety hubs and um, how do we make sure that they are accessible and welcoming and 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 you know, for everyone for all different elements of diversity um 
you know, looking at all the barriers for women with disabilities and, and, and how can um, we be part of breaking down some of those barriers and making sure that all services uh, are accepting of women with disabilities. So for me, you know, calling services and being told, well, we're not a disability-based service, we can't help you, or, you know, we call this person over there and, and having to hunt around. Mm. Um, one of the things that I got to work on a lot was the orange door. So that's where all the services exist under the one roof. And there's one number to call and you call that number and then you know, they do a risk assessment and they do assessment of all of your needs and then they work out who is the best services and where's the best place and what services you need to be, have involved to support you moving forward. Whereas the system before, I remember we had to hunt around. A million you had phone to do calls. the work. Yeah, <laughs> I had to do the work. So it was, you, know, you got bounced from one number to another and you're just, it was exhausting when you're in the midst of crisis you're the one chasing the services so now you know the victim survivor is the one in the middle and the services are kind of you know hunting around the outside of them um i know uh for me personally i feel the ndia needs to have involvement in those hubs for sure currently they're not no no, no currently yeah. they're not and and i believe that's yeah still always negotiating every you know there's all those conversations that are constantly trying to have yeah how w with regards to the royal commission of family violence um and your role in the reform mm -hmm. tell us about that and that experience and how you've seen change um <coughs> sorry um very very profound experience being involved in all of that i'd never done anything like this before i was just coming out of this world of crisis at that point um you know, being able to tell your story and having people listen is very, very empowering. Very, um, oh, what's the word? It's 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 a huge part of your recovery. And even if it's just you know one off or you know, and I've got to do and be heard so much. <laughs> so yeah. it's 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 massive. Um, but yeah, getting brought into that world and and getting to sit alongside um, you know, Rosie Batty. And, and one of my you know, really good now close friends, Phil Cleary, who's been doing this for 32 years, whose sister was murdered. Um, you know, I've learnt a lot from him, sitting along beside him. So when I went into that space, I was very scared of what I was doing. I didn't say a lot back then and I was just doing a lot of watching <laughs> and observing and, and I've slowly built confidence over the last three years to, to be in the position I am now and... And I think that's because I did get to sit beside those people and I did get brought into those conversations and um, ask questions, right? You know, we're going to be opening some new specialist family violence courts, you know. Um, you know, for someone with a disability, what do you think needs to be happening here? And, um, sorry. Um, and one of the other projects that I've, I'm, I'm really proud of that I got to work on for a couple of years was um, with Portable called Your Case. Um, so it's you know like a web-based app that um, that's just been released and it's to help people navigate court. Um, so because that's one of those systems you get thrown into. There's so much jargon you don't know what any of it means and you kind of become the expert once you start finishing your journey through courts. So this is kind of and I've got to help develop you know with this design team and work alongside them this 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 app which is you know the best friend in your pocket that um, you know down to things like you know, I don't know what to wear to court tomorrow. And just reassuring you, just you know, neat and tidy, because um, that's the things I was thinking of. You know, what am I going to wear to court? What am I going to wear that's going to make me not look like the 
um, the not coping crazy woman that he's made me out to be or that he keeps telling me I am. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, what does all this terminology mean? And actually I'm going to this court. And, the, and it's, lo- you know, court locality as well, so I didn't even know where to park at the court. So, you know, um, that stuff's empowering. Seeing, seeing your ideas actually, you know, in policy and in the new designs and the structures and it's really cool. <laughs> it's very cool. And you know what's great is the fact that, you know, they had 12 members on that that were mm. lived experience that actually and, – and how important is that getting that voice heard uh, mm. in order to create change? Incredibly important. And it's something that hasn't been done anywhere else in the world. So it's a, it's a first. It's a yeah. first. And I think there was a lot of fear of not asking people too much or burdening people or potentially re-traumatising people. But that's not actually giving us – um, much credit <laughs> or integrity in that, you know, we're actually quite intelligent, you know, um, resourceful people, and we know where our boundaries are. Um, but you know, you know, when they've when when government have gone and they've asked people in the sector, like, oh, we know what victim survivors need because we look after them all the time, is that they haven't actually realised that um, sometimes that they've got that wrong, and and they're not actually us, and sometimes the the services have been part of the problem. So, you know. I don't have a service to support. I don't have anybody else to support other than my own story and and um, and 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 you know the user experience kind of thing. So <laughs> it's it's this untapped wealth and resource of knowledge that hasn't been looked at before. And and I think um, you know we do this in banks. You know we go to our customers. You know, they go to their customers and they ask them questions. And they've got you know UX designers and. Um, um, what's the other one? Is CX designer, so customer experience design. You know, we need to have um, lived experience design. So I, 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 you know, I coin term this copyright Nicole, <laughs> <laughs> LX design. You know, the lived experience person that can put themselves um, back in that moment of crisis and go, okay, well, if you made this change, what would be the moving parts around me? What would actually happen if that thing there was to change? Would he? How would he respond? How would his family respond? How would I feel and how would that make anything different? And you can problem solve from you know what that moment felt like and you know what everybody else's reactions would have been. And that's a beautiful recipe to be alongside the design team as, as a designer from a lived experience to um, you know, do that. And it's, it's, it's vital because otherwise we're going to c- continue to design things that you know, are brilliant and beautiful and lovely but don't work yeah. or have flaws. Yeah. And that must give not only yourself but plenty of others in Victoria especially hope and empowerment about mm. the fact that they're actually a voice is being listened to yeah, and yep. they're doing something about it. Yeah, absolutely, being being listened to. And, and I guess to other survivors that are, you know, um, you know, making their way out now, knowing that, you know, people are going to listen and people are going to believe and um, that all of those narratives around, you know, victims being helpless or you know the stereotypes of what a victim is you know we're smashing all of those by speaking out and showing how diverse we are and um and 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 just how different our experiences might have been but yet how similar they were but you know i guess you know smashing that um you know vulnerable you know victimhood kind of stereotype is is you know the more we do this the more that gets blown out of the water and the more people will see themselves in the stories and the people and go, yeah, well, I am an outspoken person, so I never actually quite felt like a victim because I wasn't passive. Yeah. Yeah, so seeing that you know, victims aren't 
again, we're not the passive person cowering in the corner that we're forthright, we speak out, we defend ourselves, and that still didn't justify what happened to us. I think yeah. it's really, really important. Tell me about dis- like mental health for, for disability um, population. So tell me about uh, that and the link between domestic violence, obviously, but uh, how you've experienced mental ill health mm. even during your time, but also the importance of it moving forward. Um, yeah, so uh, there's a lot of stigma around mental health. It, it, it's still one of the really very stigmatised communities um, you know, in, in this country and I think probably in other countries as well. Um, but, uh, yeah, um, for me, so I, I suffered with anorexia very, very severely during the relationship and, um, you know, started, you know, self-harming behaviour and all those sorts of things. But uh, a huge, huge impact mm. on myself and, and my sense of, you know, identity and capability and, and, and capacity as well that that, that, that impacted um, you know, yeah. So, what was a bit more of the question there? Do, do, you, do you feel like uh, mental health, as it relates to the disability population, do you feel like the services available are getting better? That they're uh, that they're actually being listened to? That they're able more readily accessible to getting help? Um, I would like to think so, but I think there's still a lot of barriers there for that one. Um. So around being listened to, I mean, once you bring in mental health, there's a lot of discrimination. There's a lot of belittling and speaking down to and not being listened to or not being taken seriously. Um, so, you know, I'm disclosing if my husband's raping me and I don't know whether or not they didn't believe me or they didn't want to believe me. And, you know, I, I, yeah, I, as far as, you know, you, when it starts coming into the disability community and psychosocial disability and... And, and looking at people's behaviour and going, oh, well, they've got problematic behaviour and we'll just blame it on their disability and blame it on their mental health um, and not actually listen to what this person is saying or, 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 or why their behaviour is so extreme and, and we're not taking the time to hear and listen and I don't think the services are really doing that well enough that it's, you know, people are still getting labelled and, you know... And, and pathologized and and for all intensive purposes you know uh, you know diagnosis is a good you know for you know, like for me having a diagnosis it meant that I was able to make sense of you know what my experience was but then other people use that diagnosis to um, you know dismiss you so you know a diagnosis for us is good but you know when other people start using that diagnosis as you know to not listen to you or, or to not value your input is is, you know, is, is very still disempowering um, makes you feel worthless. Yeah, it makes you feel worthless, and and you feel less than with every, you know with the rest of the mm-hmm. community, and you feel that everybody is judging you because unfortunately people are, and they, and they do, and it's you know and that's that's a sad reality that I'd love to see turned around, and um, you know, and then when the it, that comes to the violence, you've got gaslighting that you're living with, and then they start to blame your mental health and. Like you know, like I said earlier, you know, well, I wouldn't do this if you weren't so difficult. I wouldn't be doing this if you weren't so crazy, and and then that impacts your mental health. Yeah. So you know, you know, mental health, and and I don't know anybody that can that, that that lives with violence that doesn't have some form of impact on on their mental health. And I think yes. we don't have enough also looking at at the impact of trauma on people and how that makes people respond within our systems and services and disability services and mental health services is looking from that trauma kind of lens and. You know, and as I said, you know, what is underpinning 
the mental health and, 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 and you know, what trauma might actually be existing there, you know. And we know from, you know, information and research and scans on, on the impact of the brain makeup from, you know, from trauma, um, that it does affect people's brain and it does change, you know, uh, you know, is it the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala and hippocampus and all that? Um, so that people's reactions when they're triggered are exacerbated, but their ability to reason has been reduced. And services not understanding that, not having that trauma understanding of, uh, rather than just blaming the person, well, it's actually the person doesn't have much control over that at the moment because of the impact of trauma, and we need to start working on that, mm. rather than just um, you know labelling and blaming or you know, putting it on the individual. Mm. Uh, um, yeah, and, and I know, for, you know, for me, it was, you know, my mental health was used against me a lot in our relationship. Yeah. Um, you know, to the point where, uh, you know, there was things, were well, punishments that was, you know, use this as motivation to eat. Um, and, and, you know, when you've got somebody with anorexia and I'm telling the hospital that he won't call an ambulance while I've got a heartbeat. And they're like, oh, no, 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 he wouldn't do that. And he wouldn't have said that. And it's like, yeah, he did. And and if I pass out, he's not going to help me. He's not going to call. So, you know, um, you know I had, um, you know, times where I, I did pass out and, and, and I was on the floor and I woke up and, you know, the punishment, I'm not going to detail that here. No. Um, yeah. And, and, and just, you know, completely broken. Yeah. Absolutely in that you know in that moment I'm just, you know, all, all I could do was cry and I was like okay you're meant to be calling an ambulance and yet you're doing this to me mm. and no one believes me and yeah. no one will listen to me because I've got mental health problems so therefore am I to be trusted and that needs to be turned around that is where you know the system needs to reassess how they're interacting with people yeah, so a big part of the solution is actually just listening mm. and, and giving them a voice. Yeah, Giving absolutely. people in that position of an opportunity to speak and be heard. Yeah, yeah. instead of just, you know, labelling, you know, their psychosis as, you know, X, Y, or Z, or, you know, you know what they're saying can't possibly be true. That seems a little outrageous, but, you know, it was true. In my incident, it was true, and it would be yeah. in other people who were disclosing things and, and not being listened to or believed. As we look to the future, what's what do you what's in store for you? But also, what do you see is in store for the direction that uh, domestic violence, uh, as it relates to people with disabilities, how do you think it's going to change in the future? Um, well, it has to. <laughs> We've got the Disability Royal Commission going at the moment. Unfortunately, for a lot of us, it's it's not. It's not hitting the marks that we need it to. It's still being very controlled by able-bodied people and we're being dismissed in our concerns as to how this commission is being run and, and organised and supported. Um, and that's 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 really not okay and that's going to be ongoing um, and we're not going to stop, <laughs> you know, just talking about that and advocating on that behalf. But, yeah. um, uh, you know, that commission, even, even in its form at the moment, will still uncover a lot of what's been going on and it already has within, you know... Um, uh, residential supported residential accommodation and um i see people start like i've been invited to speak at more places and and you know be a part of more events and things within the family violence sector and um and to give presentations and i think that's an indication that they're actually starting to recognize disability in this space so 
you know, and, and also I've never seen people calling out ableism as much as they ever have before and, you know, and, and I'm 40 um, and that there's been a whole grassroots within the disability community over many years before I came into this space that have helped build that and, and I think we're on the cusp of really starting to, yeah, we need to put diversity first and we need to, you know, look at disability and it needs to be in this space and I'm hoping in the near future that, the disability sector, the mental health sector and the family violence sector will all start to collaborate and work with each other because they need to. And, you know, one can't do something if the other's dropping the ball and it's not just the responsibility yeah. of the family violence sector to deal with violence, it's actually the responsibility of the health sector, the disability sector, the you know, mental health sector and, and, and that, you know, that those systems need to work together. And, and I think, hopefully, I th that's my feeling for the future is that is going to start happening. More integrated approach. Yeah, more integrated approach. You know, multi multi dimensional and multi agency approach on on um, starting to understand um, prevention, you know, campaigns, everything from you know, systems processes to public awareness. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it's it's amazing, and congratulations on on the action and the amount of. Uh, proactivity that you're taking and driving and the enthusiasm and inspiration that you're doing behind all the change that you're trying to create. Yeah, thank uh, you. It's incredibly inspiring to see what you're doing out there, Nicole. Thank you. Tell me, uh, 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 how can people get in touch with you? Because I know you, you do s you do presentations, you're happy to come and, and yeah. educate, um, create yeah. more awareness. Um, come and find me on LinkedIn. Yep. Uh, just under Nicole Lee, or you know, um, I'm also you know everybody's on Instagram. I'm on Instagram, and I share a lot of photos of my really gorgeous cats and grandson and my new little puppy, oh, <laughs> my new little right. sausage dog. Um, you can I, I've got a link to my email address on 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 um, Instagram as well. So I'm simply is it simply Nick? Simply Nick okay. uh, is my Instagram um, name. Yeah, and then Twitter underscore Nick underscore Lee. Congratulations on being a grandmother. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I was a very young mother. We're not even going to go into the stigma that we have on young mothers in their country. But anyway, it's another <laughs> conversation for another day. Well, uh, for some reason, I think we're going to hear more about what you've been up to and the changes that you're going to be doing in the near future because it certainly sounds like you're you're just getting... Warmed up. <laughs> it, it warmed up and in the groove. You're, you're really gaining yeah. momentum now, which is really exciting to see. Yeah, yeah, and it's one of those things that, you know, there's... there's yeah, I'm not going to stop until the violence ends and that may not happen in my lifetime so that means yeah. in my lifetime this is what I'm going to do. Well, uh, congratulations again on, on the leadership you're taking with this uh, and and the driving force behind you wanting to influence change. Thanks. Uh, and I'm sure it's going to be better off in the future even definitely it sounds like the state stuff is going very well mm. with Victoria uh, and hopefully that'll be rolled out to some other states yeah. nationwide eventually. So... Congratulations, Nicole, and thanks, thanks very much for coming and sharing a conversation with us, and thanks for having a chat. Yeah, cool. Thank you. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au. And be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.